worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. They'll eat your guts and spit them out. And when your bones begin to rot, the worms remain, but you do not. So don't ever laugh as a hearse goes by. For someday you'll be next in line. And when death brings his cold despair, ask yourself, will anyone care? Macabre may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We are back. <laughs> hey. This is exciting. I'm excited. And I know we kind of talked about it in the Dracula episode, but it would be really fucking cool to do an origin story for us on the weird shit that kind of culminated to how we ended up right here. <laughs> I think that'd be really good to put on Patreon, to be honest. Yeah. The episode that I'm going to be doing now is very different than anything that we've done before. I'm excited. And it's personalized. You know what I mean? Um, this is my hometown macabre story. I guess we should introduce ourselves. We can kind of just kick it off here. <laughs> oh, yeah. We should probably do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, Blair. Yeah, I'm Holly, and <laughs> this is macabre. We are the ladies of macabre. And today's episode is very different than anything we've done in the past. Doesn't fit into our alphabetical theme, but it's bonus content. And it's something we want to be able to add in the future. We love doing bi-weekly. I wish that we could do every single week. But the only way for us to add more content is to be able to draw from other people and share their stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's a lot of work. <laughs> and we're yeah. not historians and we're not professional researchers. So I wish we were. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're learning and, <laughs> yeah. and anytime we can get stories from other people and just present those stories, I think it's engaging and it's just, it's interesting to hear what's out there. Exactly. And we definitely want to hear from you because we know you have amazing stories. Don't keep there's them gonna, secret. There's going to be some stuff for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Crazy, crazy shit. All right, let's do this. The yeah. first hometown macabre listeners probably don't know this i am also originally from the midwest a lot of people who are maybe listening are probably people who know me <laughs> at this point because you know our fans are family and friends <laughs> um but i grew up in a really small town in southeastern indiana and during the time of the incidents I'm sharing with you today, the population was just slightly under 1,600 people, so very small. Yeah. And I opted to not change any of the names in this story. There are people who are still alive that are connected to both the victims and the perpetrators of these crimes. And for those people who are listening that are from my hometown, the information I'm presenting has been taken directly from records submitted to the court, witness statements, and I haven't fabricated or embellished these events in any way. And to be honest, I probably could have added a lot more information had I dug deeper, but I just wanted to keep it true to the way that it was presented. You know, I'm all about trying to present things in a factual way. Yeah, absolutely. 
And these things happened. Now, some of the truths and the motives of why they happened, they that information might have been withheld from the people involved. So I'm not going to get into all of that other than maybe a little bit of speculation and things that might have led up to it. But everything you are going to hear today is on public record. And with that being said, my heart does go out to the victims and the people that were left behind. And as you know, even small towns can't escape the macabre. And when these kind of things happen in small towns, it ripples through the community in a way that it affects everyone. Because as you know, everyone in a small town knows everyone else. The first hometown macabre story I'm going to talk about took place at a location in Ripley County in southeastern Indiana, and it took place at an area called Devil's Elbow. And this happened on June 21st, 1991 in Osgoode, Indiana. So at this time, I was uh, 11 years old, had just turned 11. The little town of Osgoode is a farming community. There's only one stoplight in town. And if you drive on this stretch of road for just about two minutes, maybe less, you've already made it all the way across town. There were probably just as many livestock as there were people in the early 1990s. And that is why the hometown macabre stories I'm about to share are so unbelievable. There are several people involved in this story, and I am using their actual names. This information, as I said before, was taken from the court reports and witness statements. So if you want to dig into it, you can actually look it up online. On the evening of Friday, June 21st, 1991, Michael Owens and Brian Horan had been drinking vodka, playing cards, and throwing horseshoes at the house of Owens' brother, Rodney. At about 11 p.m., both Owens' brothers and Horan went out for a drive in Rodney's Thunderbird. While they were out driving around, they saw a guy named Gary Bennett Jr. He and another guy, Bob Hendricks, were riding bicycles. There's a lot of names in this, so I'm going to do my best to try to make sure you can follow along um, as best as possible. Now, Haran, who was driving, he stopped the car, and a conversation started happening between the guys that were in the car and the guys that were on the bikes. Now, keep in mind, it's nighttime. It's out in the middle of nowhere. So Michael Owens and Haran got into an argument with Bennett, who was one of the guys on the bicycle. And the argument was basically about this guy, Bennett, having slept with both Haran and Rodney's wives. So this guy allegedly had been sleeping with a couple married guys' wives. Damn. So you know how small towns are. People talk. And yeah. after that argument had subsided, Bennett and Hendricks, who were on the bikes, and we now know they had also been drinking at the time, they decided to get into the car and go riding and drinking with these other three guys. Sounds like a very fantastic idea. Yeah. Oh. So with, uh, with Haran still at the wheel, they drove for a while, stopping at various places, including a bar. Probably the only bar in town because Osgood only had one bar. Now, whether they stopped at a bar in Osgood or in one of the other surrounding little towns, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that Bennett, the guy that was on the bike, 
he ended up buying a bottle of rum. So this bar just let him buy a bottle of rum and he shared it with the other guys and they just kept on drinking. So let me just re- like say that again. Yes. With Haran still at the wheel, they drove around for a while, stopping at various places, including a bar where Bennett bought a bottle of rum that he shared with the others. So if I'm right about the location of the bar, the only bar in town willingly sold a bottle of rum to guys who had already clearly been drinking and let them walk out the door, get back into a vehicle, and continue on their way. That blows my mind. And okay, yes, stereotypical Wisconsin talking. That's still too freaking crazy for my state as well. Well, and the question I have is, legally speaking, is there any culpability legally for what is going to happen next? Oh, no. Right? You clearly have guys that have been drinking. They come into a bar. They buy another bottle of alcohol. And we're talking rum. We're not talking about a low percentage, whatever. Like, it's it's not justified in any way, shape, or form. But Exactly. So, yeah, my, my question is, is there any culpability that that happened? And growing up in a small town, I don't know if this is true of every small town, but definitely in my small town, there's a thing called road beers. And back road cruising is just a thing. People, I don't want to name any names, but I know someone who takes a cooler of beers and just goes cruising on back roads. Like that's something that people do. And no one really cares or seems to care. And DUIs are obviously a big problem for that reason. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it often leads to really bad things, which is what's going to happen next. Eventually, the expedition took the men to a secluded area that I mentioned previously called Devil's Elbow. I've personally only been to Devil's Elbow one time. It's out in the woods. You have to drive down this winding gravel road. And on one side of the road, there's just this big, steep drop off, almost like into a canyon, except it's just dirt and trees. It's it's a pretty big drop off. Like you wouldn't want to drive too fast or skid on gravel or you'd end up on the other side of a like a really small railing down into the ravine. So the location is important. The guy driving the car, Haran, parked the car. All the men got out to talk and drink some more. At some point, the driver of the car, Haran, told Bennett he knew that Bennett had been quote, messing around with my old lady. And then Haran began to hit Bennett, who did not respond kindly. They fought until Haran knocked Bennett to the ground, at which point one of the other guys in the car, Michael, also jumped onto Bennett and began punching, kicking Bennett, saying, you've been, sorry for the language, people, you've been fucking my sister-in-law, end quote. Owens punched Bennett a few times and kicked him six to eight times in the head, chest, groin, and stomach. While he was kicking this guy in the groin, Owens said, you'll never use this again. When Owens stopped kicking him, the other guy kicked him another six or eight times. The guy on the ground who was being beaten started apologizing and pleading for the beating to stop. 
At which point, the two guys who were beating the crap out of him started to beat him again. And when this guy tried to stand up, the two taunted him and beat him some more. So you can see where this is going. Yeah. Like, this is a brutal, violent attack by two guys. And there are other people here that are here at this scene that are witnessing this. Owens and Haran, the two guys who were very involved in the beating, dragged this guy to the car, slammed his head against the car, and the guy finally collapsed. Now the two guys picked him up after he collapsed, slammed his head against the car again, and this happened another six or eight times. Oh my gosh. So this is like a brutal, brutal, this is, I mean, it's sad to say, like, this is something you would see in like a mob movie, almost. That's that's kind of what it, I was just going to say, that's what it reminded me of too. (laughs) Yeah, it's really awful. Now, I told you there were other people that were there. One of the brothers was there. And then the other friend of the guy that was on the bike was there. And they neither one of them were involved in hitting or punching this guy in any way. They actually tried to intervene and stop the people. Mm-hmm. But the people who were doing the beating told them to stay out of it or they were going to be beaten themselves. So they threatened them um, to just kind of like stay out of it and keep quiet. The Owens brothers, Haran, And the friend of the guy on the bike eventually got back into the car and they drove off. They left this beaten guy at Devil's elbow. As they drove away, the beaten guy crawled to a fence post and shouted, it ain't over, you guys are going to get yours. So he tried to like get one last word in as they were driving away. Mm -hmm. Now the four men in the car drove back to one of their homes, uh, the brother's home. And the lead guy, Michael Owens, and the other lead guy, Haran, took showers to wash the blood from the beating and change their clothes. Uh, These two guys then borrowed the brother's Thunderbird again, and they had the friend riding in the back seat. They went back to Devil's Elbow. And on the way, Owens warned the friend, Hendrix, not to tell anyone what he had seen. So this guy Hendrix was the friend that was on the bike. And now he's riding back to Devil's Elbow and he's being threatened, like to not say anything or do anything. So they get back at Devil's Elbow and they found this guy. He was leaning against a fence. And one of the guys that was involved in the beating said he could not believe the son of a bitch was still up. This was his quote. So he then got out of the car, went over to this guy, grabbed him, knocked him to the ground, and began to beat him again. When he stopped, the other guy who was involved ran over and began punching and kicking him again. So this second beating by these two guys lasted about 10 minutes. Why would you go back? They wanted to make sure the job was finished, I guess. I mean, holy shit. Yeah. So they went back. The poor guy in the car who didn't have any involvement other than he was a witness was threatened by um, one of the the main culprits and said, you know, if you say anything, basically, we're going to kill you. And 
They told him to keep his mouth shut. They had even talked about at one point about killing him. The two other guys who were mainly involved in the beating, like had a discussion at one point to kill him as well because, you know, he was a witness. Uh, But for some reason, they let him go and said, you know, your family is at risk if you tell anybody what happened or what you saw. So this all started about 11 p.m. By 3.30 in the morning, the Thunderbird stalled across the street from where Haran's brother-in-law, uh, Bobby Huntington, was staying. Owens and Haran got a jump start from one of Huntington's neighbors. Huntington asked for a ride into town. Instead of driving Huntington into town, Owens went back to Devil's Elbow again. What the heck? He said he intended to beat this guy more if he was still alive and that he was afraid that the buddy would talk so they might just have to kill him. When they got back to Devil's Elbow, Gary Bennett was dead. The men talked about ways to dispose of the body, including whether to dump it over a hill or sink it into a quarry, which we had a huge quarry in this tiny town, which is scary in itself that we all kind of like played around this area and so yeah so they were having discussion like do we dump dump them over this ravine or do we sink them in a quarry and they discussed this for about 20 minutes and this they had the body in the trunk at this time and they they drove off eventually uh Huntington who wasn't even involved in any of this in the beginning but just happened to like ride out there on the last trip got Mm -hmm. out of the car called his girlfriend and went immediately to the police to tell them what he had seen. So thank God this guy who was like, just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and ended up on the tail end of this thing. He was the one who went to the police. So I'm glad he did because. And later that morning, obviously this would be big news in a really small town. Later that morning, the police found Gary Bennett's charred, body in the Thunderbird's trunk. They also found a charred human bone on the burn pile behind Haran's mother's house. So this lead guy that was involved in the beating, they must have set this guy on fire at some point. They tried to put him in a burn pile and they were able to identify the burn body as Bennett's through dental records. Pretty much an open shut case there. Yeah. Um, The autopsy of the body showed the cause of death, no surprise, was severe trauma to the head inflicted before his body was burned. Oh, man. What a way to go. Yeah. So you have a case of small town, alcohol, (laughs) possible infidelity, probably big egos, Mm -hmm. uh, fiery personalities, and just a bad bad combination of things. And the two main guys that were involved in the beating, Michael Owens, uh, he was sentenced to 60 years for the murder. And he got three additional years for intimidation, which I'm not fully sure what intimidation is. Um, I guess uh, legal people have to tell me what that means. Yeah, is that uh, basically like he threatened somebody? Oh, like, he probably did, probably with Hendrix, because he threatened yeah. that guy and said, if you say anything, yeah, that makes sense. 
And then Horan, who was also involved in the beating, was convicted of murder and battery. And he was sentenced to 55 years in prison for murder and eight years for battery. So if you look at the math on that, he actually got more time Mm -hmm. than the other guy. And then uh, Owens' brother Rodney, who the Thunderbird belonged to, he didn't get any, there were no criminal charges against him or the other guy, Hendricks, who happened to be just the friend. Neither of them were involved in the beating. Neither of them, you know, were, I guess, culpable. And they weren't charged with anything. So because they didn't hit him, whether or not how much they tried to intervene, I can't say what was going through anyone's mind, nor can I say what would be going through my mind, because you'd be pretty freaking scared of for your life. And but anyways, they were not charged. And then um, the brother... Rodney, he actually passed away in 2017. And the other two guys are still incarcerated in uh, different facilities in in Indiana. I think that a lot of hometown stuff seems to kind of almost seems like there's almost always some sort of alcohol or drug (laughs) and infidelity involved. Right. It's like the perfect cocktail. No pun intended. Or maybe it was. um, Of just utter disaster and i i just can't believe that they kept coming back yeah you know you think that they would have just left him especially for being out there and i've never been out there but just how you were describing the area it's like that's a pretty dangerous area to begin with and it's like why the heck would you go back out to well, and it was, if my math is right, they went back like three, they, yeah. they were there like three different times. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think the two guys that were involved, they both tried to get their sentences reduced and, you know, like they they would try to get their sentences reduced. But the court said, you know, like, basically you guys were drinking you admit to drinking, but you can't use drinking as an excuse. Mm-hmm. Like you knowingly were drinking. You were driving around that way. Everything yeah. that they tried to do to get out of it, it, it was not flying with the courts. And again, so, yeah, the- they were back there three times. That also did not help. <laughs> yeah. Anyone at any point could have taken him to uh, the hospital or, mm-hmm. you know, And yeah, so that was the big one that I remember as a kid. I remember hearing about that. I didn't know all the intricacies of it at the time, but I just know that it was involved a beating and that there were two guys. And like I said, a lot of the people that are connected to these families are still alive. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say that I'm making light of any of this. And I understand how brutal this was. And it's just at the end of the day, it just it's really sad and tragic that these kind of things happen yeah i agree that is uncalled for on every single level and oh i can't imagine being like either a friend that was in the backseat or just being left like that after that and then to just have them keep coming back and oh my question is why were the and it's not relevant to the crime or the it's just a question that I had is like, why were these two guys riding around on bicycles at 11 o'clock yeah, at night? Right. 
I mean, it's a small town. There's nothing to do there. It's not yeah. like they're driving or riding a bike to the Dollar General or something like that. There was nothing in town. And maybe they didn't have, maybe they, maybe they had, I don't know. I can't, I can only speculate as to why they were, not that it matters, but just the strange culmination of events and the fact yeah. that they went to a bar when they were already drunk and the bar just let them walk out with a bottle of rum. Yeah. It's very small town. Very. <laughs> very. Very small town. It's very weird sometimes that the liberties a small town grants things oh, that you would yeah. never get away with. Yeah. A lot of DUIs got um, pushed under the rug. And I know of some personal stories, too. I definitely won't name names. And I think this was probably when I was really, really young. Like, a lot of the people in town were also friends with the cops. Oh, mm-hmm. And I know one incident where someone got pulled over for a DUI. And refuse to do a breathalyzer test so the next option is to do a urine test mm -hmm. and it wasn't monitored in the way that it is monitored now and so somebody else provided the urine sample what? that wasn't the person who got pulled over oh my gosh yeah so that's another interesting thing about small towns is, is a lot of stuff gets pushed under the rug. People, everybody knows mm. everybody. People in law enforcement try to protect their friends. You know, there's a lot of corruption. Um, I'm just glad that the people involved in this particular case went through the justice process and that some justice was served. Doesn't change the fact that someone died uh, and it was very senseless. I agree. I'm really glad that somebody spoke up. Yeah. And and that guy just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know yeah. what I mean? Just was across the street. And right. he probably kept his mouth shut long enough to like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to say anything. And then immediately was like, I have to go to the police right now. So yeah. thank goodness for that guy. Right. All right. Are you ready for the next one? <laughs> yes. Oh. Okay. Well, this one happened about two years later. <laughs> and it just happened on the other side of the county, which it's not like it's that far. You know, it's probably a few miles away. Um, this one was different because it actually involved, um, it was a mass murder of an entire family. What? Yeah. Holy shit. Uh, on August 24th, 1993, a guy by the name of George Hardebeck was at home with his mother. He lived with his mother. Uh, his sister, Betty, two brothers by the name of Marlon and Jimmy, and his brother-in-law, Virgil. Now, they're older. Let me just say that because okay. uh, I didn't give a description on that. His mother, I think, was in her maybe like 60s or 70s. So these are grown adult people. Okay. And he lived at home, just to give you an idea of kind of like a little bit of his background. One of the newspaper reports said that Hardebeck was doing some chores around the house when his sister, Betty, and his brother-in-law, Virgil, stopped by the house. And for whatever reason, this irritated him. He got upset that these, that his sister and brother-in-law came to the house. For some reason, this guy felt that his sister was picking on him. And so he just got a pistol out of the car. 
What? He went to the porch where he'd been sitting with the members of his family. And when his brother-in-law approached, no, I'm sorry. When his brother Marlon approached, Hardebeck shot him. He said that his head felt kind of funny. And then he started chasing after Betty and Virgil, shooting each of them until they collapsed. Hardebeck went back to the house where he'd already shot and killed Jimmy and discovered that Marlon, although wounded, was holding a rifle. He and Marlon struggled for control of the rifle with Hardebeck gaining control. Hardebeck then pursued, shot, and killed Marlon. Next, he moved Betty's body and her car to the barn. So he moved his sister's body and her car to the barn to hide it. Then he shot his 73-year-old mother, Martha, twice in the head, moved her body from the kitchen to a bedroom, covered her with a blanket, and mopped her blood up from the kitchen floor. He moved Jimmy's body into the basement and hid the rifle in a woodpile. At that time, Hardebeck noticed car lights coming in from inside the barn. So what that means is that his sister, Betty, was still alive, Mm -hmm. and she was trying to get her car, you know, trying to get in her car and get away, and then Hardebeck shot her again which caused the car to crash into a tree. Now, this guy changed his clothing, left his home, threw the pistol from the window of his car, and he fled to Kentucky, where he was later arrested. (sighs) So he killed five people and fled to Kentucky. And then when he was arrested, he tried to get his sentence reduced. He was sentenced to 240 years. Did not get the death penalty, but was sentenced for 240 years. And he thought that this was an unreasonable sentence. Basically saying to the court that he'd never had a record before and that these, when you stack a sentence on top of another sentence on top of another sentence, that it was just too much. But the court Mm -hmm. was like, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. You killed five people. Yeah. 240 years is different than you being sentenced to death. So yeah, he urged the court to consider different things in his life and his character, which I find this really interesting. And I'll tell you why in a second. But he claimed that he had a really dysfunctional family life and that emotional and physical abuse by family members, his mental illness, his time in the Marine Corps during a very difficult time in our history, his lack of a prior criminal record, and the fact that he felt remorse for what he did. He tried to plead with the court that he was uh, able to be rehabilitated and said that the primary consideration of a trial court is the rehabilitation of the defendant, which he truly believed he could be rehabilitated. And the court did not agree. He is currently incarcerated at a level four facility, which um, is the Department of Corrections in Wabash Valley, Indiana. And a level four facility is basically the highest level of security for the most violent offenders. Mm. Now, I have something (laughs) personal to add to this story. Oh, no. Oh, no. Which makes it even more tragic. 
And this is where the whole knowing people, like everybody knowing everybody comes into play. I personally heard a statement from someone that I know that went to school with this guy. His first name was George, George Hardebeck. I'm not going to say who this person is. Um, I'm not going to say their name. But he told me that he rode the bus with this guy when they were kids. And this guy admitted that him and his brother used to hold this guy down on the bus and they would bully him and make him miss his bus stop when he was a kid. So it makes me wonder if this guy was like bullied his entire childhood. I know of one incident for sure. And then if he was bullied again by his family and the, just the cycle of abuse and bullying made him snap. And I don't think I'm too far off on that because of what the clinical psychologist said and told the court. Mm-hmm. She said that um, in the court, she said that Hardebeck was of near normal intelligence, but he saw, suffered from chronic depression that intensified his other feelings as the years went by. She is quoted as saying, George was like a pail full of water, and the events on August 24th were the drops that caused Hardebeck to overflow. Mm. And that... Yeah, I could see. I could see it. I mean, you hear about that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah, and I mean, he lived at home. There are other people in the community that, you know, there's one report that said he claims that he heard voices and that demons made him do it. And then other people in their family are like, that's bullshit. That's just something he's making up. But I can, un- I, I, I'm not saying any of this is forgivable, but I can sometimes understand um, that kind of mental breaking point. And, and there's other ways to deal with mental breaking points. It doesn't Absolutely. mean that you need to murder your entire family, but yeah. It makes me wonder, like, had he grown up in an environment where he wasn't bullied and his family life was more normal? And, you know, they even say, like, he never felt like he accomplished anything in his life. And, you know, he was living at home as a a man who was probably in his 40s, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know the circumstances there. And it definitely doesn't excuse anything, but it kind of makes sense when you put all those pieces together. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that this was a very troubled individual. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, that is my my two hometown macabre stories. There was another one that happened very, very recently, but it involves an adolescent who murdered his two siblings. And I'm not going to get into all the details on that. So that uh, officially makes three that I know of in this small town. That's crazy. So do you have any hometown macabre stories you want to share kicking this thing off? Ooh, I could tell you about how I found out I was in a weird way connected to Charles Manson. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I did not know this until I was in college. I was taking a religious studies seminar about the concepts of evil evil in religion. And we started the seminar in the, the semester with talking about Wisconsin and yes, how we have had some pretty interesting people and serial killers 
in the state. Uh, of course, we're talking about Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer. But we also brought up Charles Manson, which you're like, Wisconsin? Charles Manson? Charles Manson was in California. Yeah, that was my thought, too. Yeah, exactly. Well, come to find out, there was a girl from Wisconsin, from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, called Mary Brenner. Now, Mary Brenner ended up being present at the one big murder spree that had happened that involved them. She was also pregnant and had, uh, with Charles' child. Well, after I found that out, I went and told my mom about it. Because <laughs> I was like, did you know that there was a Manson girl from Eau Claire? And How big she, is Eau Claire for people who don't know? Yeah, good question. Eau Claire is approximately, give or take, 70,000 people. Okay, so that's, I mean, it's it's larger than where I came from, but still small yeah. in comparison to like a bigger city. Right. And at the time that this happened, back uh, when Mary was around and still going to school and stuff, um, we were much smaller. Uh, we, it, it didn't even get this big until recently. So imagine a population of under 50 or 40. It was, it was much smaller then. And I was in shock, you know, you don't think about that. And I told mom about it and mom said, oh yeah, I knew about that. And she's like, your aunt worked with her mom. And I'm like, what? You know, my mind is completely blown. Yeah. Come to find out uh, my aunt worked with Mary's mom at a clinic. They were pretty good friends. And they had worked together at the time that Mary ran away. And uh, Mary was a very bright student in school. She had a whole life ahead of her. She had a lot of opportunities with how she excelled in school. Um, what she, she, of course, she was very young. Didn't she have a PhD? Did I read that? Yes. Right somewhere? She had a PhD? Yeah. In music. I wow. Believe. Oh, yeah. And Manson was like trying to be a musician. Yeah. So that that's just kind of like a too close to home kind of weird connection. And, you know, of course, I didn't know that until I was in college. And unfortunately, at that time, my aunt wasn't doing very well. And that's not really something that you want to bring up to a relative who is health is declining, you know. And mom didn't really know a lot of the answers either. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I know Wisconsin in itself, a lot of, there's a lot of small towns in Wisconsin. And yeah, I mean, obviously some of the biggest known names in the world of serial killers are Dahmer and Ed Gein, Ed Gein, yep. Ed Gein, however you want to say it. But yeah, that's why this segment I think is so fascinating because we all have something. You yeah. know, I mean, my <laughs> the stories I told you, you have never heard of before. No. And most people would have never heard of that story had I not shared it. Exactly. And that's why I want to hear from other people. Send us your stories. Yes, please. We want to hear from you. So let's, uh, how to find us. I feel like people that have been listening at this point, they know where to find us. But for people who don't, 
Uh, you can find us on our Facebook group. Just search Macabre Podcast. We have a website. You just type in macabrepod.com. That's where you can actually leave a recorded message for us. And we'd love to hear stories in your own words. Uh, you can leave a message for up to five minutes or more. If you run out of time, just click on it again and continue on. And then uh, feel free to shoot us an email at thatsomacabre at gmail.com. Any final thoughts, Blair? I'm just speechless. <laughs> I'm speechless that it is just absolutely crazy. And like we, we've been saying, every town has it. And yeah, to... and I have a story too that I, I don't think I'm completely accurate on all of the details, but I do know that a friend of mine who grew up in San Diego, I think her mom grew up in Southern California. I'm not sure exactly if it was like the LA area or Riverside or San Diego. But she grew up in uh, like the 70s, I want to say. And she was almost the victim of a serial killer. Now, the name of the serial killer, again, I don't know. But whoever it was, he was targeting like teenage girls. And he would stalk them for a while, take their photographs with like a Polaroid and he actually got busted. And then when they went to go search this guy's house, my friend's mom's picture was in his stuff. That's insane. So she was probably his next target. I was able to confirm that it was actually the Hillside Strangler in LA. And that's crazy to think about that. Yeah. You know, my friend and her mom might not be around had they not caught this guy. And it's almost impossible to wrap your head around something like that. Oh, yeah. That was one of the things I wanted to talk about, too. Just talking about, you know, there's a thing floating around the Internet that says people in their lifetime oh, like yeah. pass up to 37 serial killers during their lifetime, which I think that number's a little, it's a little bit exaggerated, but even if you walk past one in mm -hmm. your entire lifetime, <laughs> which that is not unrealistic at all, no. I think that is a pretty scary statistic. Agreed. And you know, yeah. we all know those people growing up in school, you're like, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that guy. He's a little strange. <laughs> He's a little off. That's the thing, right? People say, oh, that, that person's a little off or a little bit odd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, we did it. We we um, we, we killed the first it. Hometown Macabre episode. Heck yeah. And uh, we'll call that a wrap. Stay yes. safe out there. Yes. Carry some mace, uh, pepper spray. <laughs> Keep your cell phones close. Yep. Keep the hand at the level of your eye. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Keep the hand at the level of the... Keep your hand at the level of your eye. And what, tell, explain to me what that does. So very, very um, morbidly described here. That's if somebody tries to strangle you, uh, put you in a stranglehold of any sort, having your hand at the level of your eye is going to brace you for that impact. It keeps them from completely taking out your airways and it gives you kind of a leg up on them you would have a little bit more force to get out of that using that hand.
Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because the method of murder in my episode is strangulation. Is it for real? Yeah, and they did not employ that <laughs> technique. We're syncing up. This is weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about that on the G episode. Yes. But for now, stay safe out there. Send your hometown macabre stories to us. Yes, please and, do. Uh, We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye. Mm-hmm.